You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project out of 312 Maine. This podcast is about bringing forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hi, my name is Melissa Roach. My name is Maria Cecilia Saba. This week, our guest is Patricia Reed. She is an artist based in Berlin. Patricia was at SFU Woodwards in October to give a talk on horizonless futures. And she is here interviewed by Am Johal, uh, talking more about her practice and uh, the theory work that she does around her practice. To see the whole talk, make sure to check out our knowledge mobilization audiovisual gallery at sfuwoodwards.ca. Hi, welcome uh, to our podcast, everybody. Glad that you could join us. We're here today with uh, writer, designer, and theorist Patricia Reed, uh, who's based in Berlin. Uh, welcome, Patricia. Thanks, Sam. Nice to be here. Thanks yeah. for the amazing hospitality here in Vancouver. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your uh, intellectual uh, trajectory. You moved to Berlin in, in 2002. I know you did your um, undergrad at Concordia mm -hmm. in Montreal and then later went to uh, European graduate school. But it'd be great if you could talk about um, some of the work that you did previous to what you're working on now. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I moved to Germany in 2003, uh, uh, first to Stuttgart, in fact, because uh, I had a very nice fellowship there. Um, and, uh, you know, prior to that, I had always been, you know, obviously way back when went to an arts high school in, in Ottawa, you know, public arts high school, wonderful place. Um, and was always kind of doing a bunch of theoretical readings, uh, all, you know, since a really long time, it was always a kind of interest. Um, and uh, you know, was kind of coinciding that with artistic practice, um, but then it started to really become much more dominant. Like in many cases, unfortunately, maybe more dominant than the art practice. Um, so that's kind of why I decided to. You know, much later, I was like quite. Uh, you know, I was like thirty or something when I went back to do a master. So I've been doing a, a bunch of like writings and stuff like that um, on my own and just continuing reading. Um, but I think like one thing that was I guess important about doing the masters was like you kind of if you're kind of doing a lot of that reading on your own you don't necessarily feel like so confident with the material or you know I kept feeling like oh I'm probably misunderstanding everything um, but then you know having done a, like a slightly more formal thing I mean you studied there you know it's not very formal either um, just getting a little bit more confidence that okay you're not a total idiot you can negotiate this material and um, yeah so I've just been kind of having an active uh an active um, life with theory and then of course getting involved with uh, with other people mainly you know via online channels I would say um, and um, yeah it's just kind of been a pursuit and uh, really I think it's kind of interesting that um, you know coming sort of adjacently at it like not being a proper academic or something I've actually got to meet and work with so many amazing thinkers via design practices mm -hmm. um, and that's been always really cool because uh, you know if you get sort of um, I had jobs doing like scientometrics when I was younger, so like kind of stemming from the social studies of science, like how bibliographies uh, become analyzed, like uh, information visualization in order to sort of like map disciplines and map trajectories and map, uh, you know, certain economic practices driving disciplinary research and so on and so forth. Like you have to first negotiate with, you know, scientists and other disciplines that you have no idea about. 
and then figure out ways to you know to work and and find um, let's say information cartographic strategies to best like display the complex information that they want to convey. Um, so that's always been like an amazing position to like get in contact with a bunch of other fields that I think if you just do theory, you don't necessarily have that. And so I felt really lucky that basically I could offer services to these people. So it was a way that you you were useful to them, but then you got to engage with all this stuff that you maybe wouldn't have picked up on your own. And and even today, you you continue to work um, as an artist. You're giving public talks in in many mm -hmm. places as well. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that relationship between art and theory that you've worked with for a while, and also the kind of tensions that uh, function when you're trying to work in in those various ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think I mean obviously I'm not the only artist who writes and, and does work. There's there's a there's uh, a tradition, I think, actually stronger in North America. Because I think, like, writing is, is a little bit more part of the artistic education here. You know, I guess every artist negotiates it differently. I have to do them in different headspaces, basically. I can't do it in parallel. Um, so you go through, like, phases where you're writing, um, and you're kind of thinking about things in terms of, you know, arguments and, and definitions and what have you. And then, of course, when you bring that into material practice, uh, that's definitely not how you want to think. Like, I don't think a good artwork uh, is about setting an argument. Um, it's about like providing a condition of a certain type of experience that you want to convey, but it's not as, let's say, pointed or fixed as, as a theoretical argument. Um, so I tend to do them differently. And I guess the reason, the, the way that I always sort of rationalize spending so much time in the theory world is um, just because I think it helps train your intuition a little bit better. So. Uh, if you're thinking about a lot of problems, so even if you're not like necessarily illustrating it in a one-to-one -one way, which I think is I would not want to do necessarily in, a, in in an art practice, you're kind of training your intuition of how you're, you know, how you set up for the problems that you want to kind of negotiate in an artwork. Um, maybe how you think about you know the relationship between ideas and materials a little differently. So kind of try to see it in a way of as like training intuition in a bit, <laughs> if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, a number of uh, your theoretical projects, you've tended to work um, in collectives with groups of people um, through technology in various ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the difference between working on theoretical projects on your own and then when you're working in uh, collectives with people. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the one that has certainly got the most attention is the, is the Laboria Cubonics um, group. And we actually tend to describe it more as a, as a working group rather than a collective because I think like a collective is maybe more associated with having a, let's say, more uniform position or uh, a certain focus that there's a consensus necessarily around it and, and it's like put forth in a collective voice. Um, and I think with the Laboria Cubonics thing, obviously there was a kind of uh, consensus on a diagnostic terrain, um, but there's much difference between us uh, in terms of where our, uh, let's say, personal interests are, are more <coughs> emphasized, right? Like, um, the, let's say, yeah, there's, there's more... Um, we're interested in different disciplinary pursuits uh, via this common thread of what we call xenofeminism. Um, but what's been great about that is, of, again, of course, you you get exposed to a whole set of other concerns, a whole other angle through which to see the world um, that you weren't necessarily thinking through on your own. Um, so it's it's a kind of immense learning curve because I think it's you know I think we kind of recognize that. Um, 
we can't really properly address reality from like one perspective or one discipline or someone there there's, there's not going to be any sort of way to monopolize that on if you want to get a bigger picture um, yet of course one person can't do that so it's it's interesting to kind of try to work together and try to find ways to interface these different um, these different uh, pursuits and figure out where they where they uh, where they join where they don't and so on and so forth so that's been really um, incredibly you know incredibly useful incredibly humbling as well to to work with uh, particularly in that group with these five other women so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. now um, in, in uh, being at your seminar yesterday it's interesting uh, seeing you uh, uh, speak and and the role that um, uh, diagrams models uh, play in the way that and I guess it's the design side of you coming out in in particular ways and and I find that really unique actually in terms of art talks that I go to and these types of things I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about um, have you always had a fascination with diagrams and models or did it did it um, come uh, in a particular way yeah I think um, I mean I think uh, definitely yes I mean I've always had these like you know, mind maps or whatever, they look like those crazy conspiracy, you know, diagrams where you're connecting a bunch of things and so on and so forth. And um, uh, so diagrams, I think, you know, just to be like quite frank about it, I think you can like, it's possible to write a text and be a little sneaky and uh, you could include certain things in there that you're not entirely sure that are fully fleshed out or not. And I think like a diagram is like a kind of bullshit meter test. I don't think you can bullshit a diagram. Um, and so you kind of, and I feel like when I really properly understand a concept, then I can make a diagram. But until, so it's kind of like a, a litmus test for, for understanding a position that you're trying to map out. Um, and I really like the way that it, I really, yeah, it's kind of like this ultimate compressor, right? Like, uh, and I like that challenge of having to take something that is, you know, maybe takes 30 minutes to explain. Um, and of course, it's helpful to have a narration over a diagram. Mm-hmm. but that it's still possible to work on that compression and get it in one, like, succinct two-dimensional surface. Um, it, yeah, so I, I think that's what I enjoy about the challenge of, of diagrams, basically. Um, so, and... and no, no, I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've uh, visited you in Berlin when you're in the middle of working <laughs> in one of these, and I can see all these things, like, pasted up on your walls, and it looks like... A mad woman working. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's, it's not an unfair... <laughs> I'll have to just... You know, that's why we're, we're doing a podcast and not a video interview yeah. at my house. <laughs> Don't need to... But thanks for revealing it. <laughs> um, uh, I was going to talk to you a little bit about the talk you gave last night. So mm-hmm. on horizonless uh, futures, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you came to this topic and why this is of concern to you now. Yeah, well, I think, um, like, what I was, I guess, uh, you know, there's, like, a primary interest in this sort of, like, underlying spatial-temporal relationship to the surroundings. So that's obviously the geometric interest. Um, And how how horizons sort of mark a human biosensory limitation. And, of course, we all intellectually know that, you know, wherever our line of sight ends, the world doesn't drop off. We know that, but is our corresponding, do our corresponding behaviors, activities, um, and the way we figure relationship to each other, to other species, to the world itself, um, do those actually not 
respond more to the illusion of the vanishing point than rather that is, which is beyond. So, um, and, and that, you know, just put in a, in a more simple way um, would be like, um, it seems like we as humans find difficulty in, find, you know, in changing behaviors for things that aren't directly present to us, right? And I think that's why the example and, and certainly your work on, on climate change activism is it's a real, uh, I think it's really difficult to bring this into a political or politicizable question because it's almost, it's almost existing only in this kind of idea, almost beyond the vanishing point, at least for the immediate condition in, in Canada. Certainly uh, climate change is not beyond the vanishing point mm -hmm. in many uh, places around the world. Um, but how do we understand uh, different ways that we are motivated to change behavior, to change positions, and so on and so forth, because it seems to me that that simply knowing alone isn't enough. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, one of the general questions that I certainly have is like, what is the relationship between knowing and doing? Because I think that there's a lot of assumptions in, in especially theoretical positions where, or even like certain, certain modes of, 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 of uh, consciousness erasing and so on. Like these are obviously important. We need to have access to information, better descriptions of the world, or better accounts of the world, as Haraway would, would have said. Um, but that alone doesn't seem to be enough of a motivational impetus for us to change. So the question is, how do you exist in those new ideas? Um, how do those ideas become transformed into instruments, into tools? Um, and so I think there's like a big negotiation that needs to, to happen um, between the the types of ways we you know, the way we know the world and the different ways that that knowledge can be articulated through instruments right it doesn't have to be a one to one translation so that's the sort of yeah that's like one part of the interest in the horizon is which i guess is sounding very obtuse at this point but then uh and, and this is very early stages of this so uh it's going to be fairly ignorant what I'm saying to you at this moment, but uh, I have been really inspired by the work of um, this philosopher, Giuseppe Longo, who also happens to be, you know, he's like a thinker of mathematics, but then also biology. And one of his interesting um, insights is that uh, this sort of computational logic that seems to be a very dominant logic of our moment, um, it doesn't coincide. You can't map it into biological processes, which are all about particularity. So he has, I think, work in in a lot of cancer institutes. So when you see him speak, he's talking about, you know, each each lab rat is like you have the full genealogy of that particular lab rat. It's not just a generic lab rat, right? Because um, biological systems require that degree of particularity um, that is not necessarily. Um, accounted for in a computational logical system. So he's kind of interested in the tension between these. But his work in geometry is, is really talking about um, the tension or the interplay between human abstract conceptions and phenomenology. So I think it's an interesting way. I think geometry is, a, is an interesting way to, to see where those two worlds meet, the abstraction and the everyday performance in life um, based on a sort of conceptual understanding of space. So um, it seems to me like an interesting way to, while critiquing this sort of immediacy of phenomenal experience, to also recognize that it has a, it plays within um, this abstract system. So you're not disavowing human experience either. 
um, but you're kind of rather demanding something other of it, let's say. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've been um, involved a little bit with the Stralka Institute, and you're involved with a number of other projects now. I'm just wondering what, what, you're, what else are you working on right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I'm involved with Stralka. I mean, I had the great privilege to, um, to go, you know, to, to do a couple of remote talks there, but also uh, the great privilege to, to see uh, the final student projects for the second year in Moscow uh, this, this summer, which was, you know, it's, it's just incredible what, they're, uh, what these uh, young people are able to do in a very compressed amount of time. Um, and the, the, scale, the scale at which they are thinking, but not only that, the, the different forces that they're bringing together in articulating their projects. So um, what was particularly a, of, of note for me in seeing this year's cohort was, uh, you know, the, the general sort of approach to design away from how we typically tend to think of design, which is like you make something, you, you're an industrial designer, you, you, you create an object, you're an architect, you create a building and so on, is that they're really approaching design from a question of enablement. So, uh, like, what are the what are the forces at work that enable certain practices, modes of valuation um, to emerge? So it would be almost like, you know, um, it's kind of, let's say if we take an example of like architecture, it would be like the most, uh, you would say the most influential architect would be like AutoCAD, the software, right? The thing that everyone has to use in order to, to even make the building. So that was a kind of general observation that I thought was really, uh, really, really useful. So there's a, there seemed to be a lot of focus in that program about, at least this year, uh, of this kind of design from below, in a way. Um, and then other projects that I'm working on now, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's a little, it's a little messy. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff is a little bit, um, it's just like more, yeah, kind of pursuing more in this geometrical question, which is an immense amount of stuff to learn uh, in the next bit. Hopefully, with some collaboration with some mathematicians, who can actually like set me straight in a lot of it <laughs> yeah. uh, to get out of the nonsense. Which is, I think it's imp- I think it's interesting to like work with the sciences. I never got into Badu's yeah. set theory. I just ignored it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Went to the rest I was so. always checking the, you know, you get ambitious in the yeah. in these interim chapters and in the big in the big books and. You look at the legend in the back to try to like at least verbalize the equations uh, or the formalizations, but yeah, I'm not a I'm not a, a set theory person. But I think I think it's interesting to negotiate that. But I think there's if you don't know, then you also have to be a bit humble because there's a lot of you know there's like a lot of like bad yeah. abuse of like the humanities pilfering funny ideas from the sciences and they don't like necessarily have a grasp on the just like rudimentary yeah. thing that they're trying to take inspiration from. I have no problem with people taking inspiration or liberty with certain things, but, like, you got to kind of know it. Um, so, yeah, there's, like, a big learning curve going to be going into that. Um, but quite honestly, like, I'm hoping to take a little writing break and get back into materials and stuff again and, and, and oh. films. And, nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. So I, our um, listeners are always interested in getting book recommendations or theorists that you're uh, interested in, in looking at mm. now. You mentioned a few uh, yesterday in some of the work, but I'm wondering, you know, who are you um, excited by in terms yeah. of the writing they're doing now? And Oh, God, there's so many. Well, I think, like, we have to, like, give a little shout-out to... I mean, there's, like, one scholar that I'm really a fan of. I think she's really helpful especially in terms of like uh, media theory, 
and she's new to, as far as I know, new to SFU, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, Wendy Hui Kyung Chung. And um, she's, uh, yeah, she's a wonderful thinker, very helpful, and what, what I find really useful in my own thinking about technology, the sort of interfacing between um, the social and the, and the technical is that she's, she just has a really profound knowledge of the of, of technical infrastructure. So she's not just um, she's not just looking at technology as a kind of symptomatic, like grumpy, oh, Twitter is this and we don't have attentions, blah, blah, blah. But then she can really give you insight into how these network structures are formed, under what assumptions do they come into being and, and how they're shaping our reality today. So it's a much more... Um, it's a much more sort of in-depth analysis that I just find really, really useful uh, because it's it's neither like techno fetishist nor pessimist, but it's it's like a very solid analytical thing. And she's done some wonderful um, books and amazing talks on on this as well. Um, yeah, and then some of the the you know another philosopher that um, that's been really useful for me uh, is not a new one. It's this like Wilfred Sellers this you know, American pragmatist, uh, pragmatist philosopher, where it's like this kind of principle of the stereoscopy of, of bringing the scientific image into sort of some sort of relation with the manifest image, uh, and that's that to me strikes me as a really important uh, or potentially interesting angle to to work from as an artist. So, um, and of course, there's like without putting a, a positivist hierarchy. <coughs> the manifest image should, or the scientific image ought to be instructing the manifest. It's not. It's not this kind of hierarchical relationship anymore. But in, if you want to just be more in general, also it's just like how to bring this counterintuitive, insensible world into some sort of manifest uh, reality, something that can be experienced, something that can be lived, in order to transform um, how we understand ourselves. Um, so that's that's I think what. Uh, that's also quite important. Um, and who else would I would I recommend? I mean, there's this like an infinite amount. I should have. I should, you got to give me that one in advance. So oh yeah. Can, okay. Well, that was that was good. That was that was that was good. That was good. I just want to say thank you so much for for joining us, uh, Patricia. And uh, ten years uh, being away from Vancouver is far too long, so you have to come <laughs> back here again. Yeah, with pleasure, especially when it's nice and sunny like this. I was not expecting, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been wonderful to be here, and yeah, just grateful for the hospitality and everything. It's and hoping to get to meet a few more of these like amazing scholars running around the building here uh in yeah. the next in the next few days so yeah for sure thank you so much for for joining us with uh, patricia reed this week thank you so much for listening thank you patricia reed for being here with us today and as always thank you to our production team uh including myself maria cecilia and jamie lee gonzalez who is here with us in the booth if you can call this a booth <laughs> we're in our office yeah and make sure to subscribe to our podcast thanks and catch you next week Bye.